This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a powerful conversation about why so many young men go down the wrong path and how to steer them in the right direction. Jamil Giovanni is author of Why Young Men, Rage, Race, and the Crisis of Identity. Also, a competition bureau investigation has resulted in Ticketmaster having to fork over $4.5 million. So what does this mean for consumers? Plus, more followed from the decision to not charge a Lethbridge police officer who repeatedly ran over an injured deer. You're not born a gangster. There is a lived experience that causes people to become members of street gangs. And, and that's what has to be looked at. Some interesting words today from Toronto's police chief, Mark Saunders. You're not born a gangster. And I think it's a really interesting jumping, jumping off point to this first conversation we're going to have today uh, about why young men are going down troubled paths. You're not born a gangster. You're not born a jihadist. You're not born a white supremacist. So where does that come from? What makes young men so angry and disillusioned that they end up going down these paths? Are, are, we, are we leaving them in the lurch? Are we abandoning young men, in some cases, to these fates? Do we need to understand what's causing this so that we can be there for them? So that we can ensure that young men channel all of this in the right way and go down the right path? Well, it's the subject of a new book. Back to just a wide release in the U.S. this week for our author in this new book. And, and it's a book about young men. In some ways, it's, it's a book about him and, and the path he went down. Uh, Jamal Giovanni is the author of Why Young Men, Rage, Race, and the Crisis of Identity. He's a visiting professor at Toronto's Osgood Hall Law School, founder of the Citizen Empowerment Project. Uh, Jamal, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. It was an interesting quote from Mark Saunders, wasn't it? That, you know, you're, you're not born a gangster, right? And, and, I mean, it seems so sensible. Well, of course, nobody is. But obviously, people go down that path. And, and this is what you're trying to, to, I think, help answer for people, isn't it? How it is that young men end up going down that path. Yeah, I think so often when we're talking about these problems, we take this bird's eye view or we want to talk about the economy or the political environment or the state of the culture but very rarely do we look at these things through the eyes and experiences of young men themselves and i think what i'm trying to do is help people see that you know when a young man's going through the same sort of chaos and turmoil that all people go through at some point in our lives there are violent groups there are criminal networks there are radical ideologies that are expertly designed to reach those young men in those moments and offer them a friend 
offer them a helping hand, offer them camaraderie, understanding, a purpose, a mission, and a way of weaponizing that angst that we all can relate to in some way. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You take three 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds, one of them's a gangbanger, the other's, uh, you know, a, a white supremacist skinhead, the other's uh, fallen into kind of a jihadist ideology. You might think, well, these are three completely different people, but there, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of common threads there, isn't there? Absolutely. My biggest challenge, uh, you know, since writing the book has been helping people connect those dots because for a variety of reasons, people are very hesitant to. They don't have empathy for one group that they might have for another. And, and it's something that all of us are potentially at risk of is having those blind spots where we don't see some young men as potentially our own son or brother or friend, but we see another group of young men as being uh, relatable. So what I try to do in my work is show, well, what are these common, uh, what is the common ground between these different young men in different circumstances? And a lot of it is a desire to be respected, a desire to be admired, to be strong, uh, to, to chase some sort of definition of masculinity that might be evading them and they're looking for it and finding really negative and destructive understandings of what a man looks like and whether that's on the street or on the internet or in their peer group at school or at work. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, is, is that part of it? I think there's a lot of factors here, but it's interesting when you talk about masculinity in, in today's context, it can be really difficult to convey, I think, to young men why masculinity matters and, and even what it is. That's exactly right. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is I talk about a young man I met in Europe coming out of prison, and I met him in a program where he was learning to be a housekeeper. He was the only man in a room full of 50 people. And I asked him, you know, isn't it awkward for you? You're, you're sitting in this room with a, with a bunch of women, you're the only man, and you're being trained for a job that is traditionally not seen as a masculine job. And what he said to me is, I just got out of jail. This is the only thing I can do to provide for my daughter. I'm going to do it. And that to me was like an example of where the masculinity idea can be very powerful in a positive way. Where does it mean to be a man to provide for your family and be an asset to your community? Yes. Does that mean you should be afraid of what kind of job you have because maybe more women work in that field? Absolutely no. And that's what I'm trying to show people. I don't want to go around talking about toxic masculinity and making people think that being a man is a negative thing. It's not. Being a man is great. We need strong men for our boys. We need strong men in our families. But we need to understand what a strong man is. And it actually isn't about holding other people down or being hateful or denigrating women. It's about being an asset and being a provider and a contributor to the places that we live and to our households. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, for me, as a, a father of a young man just going into his teen years, I mean, it, 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 so that's a big responsibility because in a lot of ways, then, the, the fathers represent that, that role model. But is, is a lack of fatherhood, you know, for young men not having a father or father figure present, is that a big factor in, in how they, they sort of lose sight of what this means? Yes, I think that in every household you have role models that can be available to a child. Uh, that's a masculine role model and a feminine role model. And when one of those is missing, you're sending your child out into the world to look for that role model somewhere else. And like we would expect, most kids don't know how to go through that process in a healthy and safe way. And so often the examples they're finding are people who are as lost as they might be. And so having those role models in the house is incredibly important. And even in my own life, like I grew up without a father and I know what it's like to not have seen a man do the kind of 
boring, mundane things that a responsible adult does. All I saw about men was on TV and in music videos, the flashy guys, the tough guys, the people who fight. And, uh, and, but I didn't see a man pay taxes. I didn't see a man look after his kids who loved his wife, who held her hand, who, who cooked dinner when mom was working late. I never saw any of that. And that's the kind of example that you can only get when you're seeing a man live his life right beside you as a child. Right. And so, I mean, it's, it's one thing then to diagnose that problem and say, you know, here's, here's what's causing this. But, you know, when you take a step back and say, well, how do we turn this around? Where, where is the fix? That seems like such a daunting challenge. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that we cannot use law and policy to uh, force people to be good parents. Right. But we can get certain things out of the way for people to be better parents. So, for example, when you have an overly punitive criminal justice system that burdens young men who make mistakes early on in their lives and holds them back from ever reintegrating into society, that's a big problem because we want those men to grow into role models as they get older. So that would be one example. But even on a bigger sense, I mean, this is a cultural thing more than anything else. We need to honor fathers promote fatherhood, raise boys who understand that taking care of children and contributing to your family is an expectation and something that we applaud, and also make sure that people take the institution of marriage and and the, the, the family unit more seriously. It should be the centerpiece of all of our conversations about the economy and public policy. Are we doing what's best for men and women to work together and raise children together, or are we sabotaging them by promoting division or making one group privileged over another and that's a that's a huge mistake i think yeah and so ultimately then this book really is for everyone this isn't just a book aimed at at men saying you know men we need to step up this is really aimed at everybody isn't it yeah i would say the 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 readers i hear most from are women they're they're mothers they're teachers they're social workers they're women who see men in their lives and want to better understand how they might be helpful i mean that is the group that I think uh, the book is reaching the most, because I, I do think a lot of women hear this message in the way I intend, which is this is not a criticism of feminism or some attempt to compete where we're saying men need more than women. It's really just a matter of saying just as in every family, we want men and women to respect each other and work together. We need to be able to do that in society. And that means encouraging men to talk about what they need and how we can make their lives better just as we want to for women. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you touched on your own experience, and I mean, in, in a way, this, this book is, is partly your own story, but um, it, it is deeply personal to you. At, at what point did, did you really devote yourself to not just calling attention to this, but, but trying to be a leader in, in this area? That's a great question. I mean, a lot of the personal stuff I decided to add into the book because I felt like I was demanding a level of vulnerability and honesty from the young men I was writing about, and I, and I needed to reciprocate that. I needed to set an example for what it looks like to open up the wounds of your childhood and say, this is why I am who I am. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And I think the book is a big part of me stepping into that role, although I've, been, I've taken that seriously, frankly, since my 
life became a lot easier. I mean, I had a difficult childhood, but I wound up at Yale Law School. Um, and once I got that kind of an education and became a lawyer, I took that as a responsibility to give back to other people going through the challenges that I experienced growing up. And that's really that, that, that the weight of that privilege, the weight of that opportunity is what drove me to want to be a leader and to work on these issues. Yeah, because you, you felt that pull yourself, I understand. I mean, you, you grew up, you saw people getting in, into that world of, of violence and gangs. You yourself maybe found some of that identity in, in a different way. You joined up. It was the. Um, the five percent nation wasn't it yeah you know when you're a when you're a lost boy you know you're a teenager and you're not engaged in school and you don't have a good relationship with your parents like many teenagers are experiencing um there are a lot of people who want to waste your time quite honestly there are a lot of radical groups and people on the internet and uh who just have an agenda that they want you to be part of and I, I wasted a lot of years, you know, following those agendas and going down different rabbit holes. And I've been very blessed to be able to say that I kind of didn't lose too many years because I was able to, to rebound. And that gives me a lot of the insights into the small margin of error that a young man often has where, you know, there are mo- many moments where I came very, very close to potentially ruining my life by buying a gun or joining yeah. a horrible cause and dedicating myself to nonsense. Right. And, and, you know, I think yours is such a fascinating story, too. Not, not just that you, like so many other young people, you know, were, were close to that or were drawn into that, but, you know, to, to get yourself back on track. And I'm sure a lot of people probably wrote you off at the time that, that this, you know, this kid's going nowhere. Uh, he's not doing well in school. He's, he's getting mixed up with, with troubled people. And yet it, here you are. I mean, you go to Yale Law School. Uh, you're at the University of Toronto. You've uh, written the book. I mean, I, I don't know that anyone at the time would have predicted that that was your path. Oh, certainly not. I mean, when I was 16 years old, I was considered illiterate um, because people didn't think I could read and write. And English is the only language I know well. So mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when they said illiterate, that meant I didn't know how to read and write at all. Um, so, yeah, I was one of those people who was, was very easy to write off. And, and I remind people of that all the time because I think it's a testament to the importance of second chances. I, mean, I, I see the, the chaos that a lot of young men can cause. But I think that when we punish them in ways that don't give them the opportunity for redemption, then we're only making it harder for them to become positive members of society. And I'm an example of that. I mean, there are pe- people could have written me off and give me no second chance to prove myself after high school. And thankfully, I was able to go to a community college where I could show people, hey, I actually can read and write. And I am capable of a lot more than I've shown so far. Yes, indeed. Well, it's such an important conversation, uh, an important book. It is called Why Young Men... Uh, it's uh, available now, just released, as mentioned, a wide release in the U.S. this week. So congrats on that. But uh, it is available in Canada, of course. Jamil Giovanni, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. All right. All the best to you. There you go. That is uh, Jamil uh, Giovanni. He is uh, author of the book, Why Young Men, Rage, Race, and the Crisis of Identity. Such a, a relevant and important conversation in so many ways. And he's such a great example of, you know, the potential that, that lies within so many young men who we're, we're maybe already writing off. Yeah. 
It was about a year and a half ago, January of 2018, that the Competition Bureau of Canada announced that they were taking action against Ticketmaster and the parent company Live Nation for allegedly making deceptive claims to consumers when advertising prices for sports and entertainment tickets. And and this has been a source of controversy. And obviously, you know, Ticketmaster often feels like it's kind of the only game in town, right? When it comes to buying tickets, people want to go to sports events. People want to go to concerts. And people want to know what the price is. And, and the concern, what's known as drip pricing, results in consumers paying much higher prices than advertised. It's one thing to see what and you think is the price, and then you end up paying, and it turns out to be a whole lot more. So a year and a half later, this investigation has culminated in the announcement that Ticketmaster is going to pay $4.5 million in penalties and associated costs resulting from this investigation. Joining us to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Josephine Palumbo, Deputy Commissioner with the Competition Bureau's Deceptive Marketing Practices Directorate. Josephine, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. So what led to this coming about in the first place then? Well, again, uh, the the Bureau undertook uh, an investigation um, in uh, January of 2018. We launched a legal action to stop uh, Ticketmaster and uh, related companies from allegedly making deceptive claims to consumers when advertising prices for sports and entertainment tickets. And at the time, the Bureau's investigation concluded that Ticketmaster's advertised prices were not attainable because they added mandatory non-optional fees during the later parts, uh, stages of the purchasing process. Um, and in the Bureau's view, the price representations were misleading, even though uh, the amount of the fees were uh, disclosed before the consumer completed their uh, transactions. So we, th- we believe and we, we believed and we still believe that the, that that is misleading. And in fact, the, the Bureau concluded that the mandatory fees that were imposed by Ticketmaster often increase the advertised price by more than 20%, and in some instances, by over 65%. So consumers may have made uh, different choices if they had had full information about the total cost of their tickets up front before deciding to buy them. So today's um, announcement really ends the, uh, the legal process, uh, the legal proceedings, um, by uh, reaching a consent agreement uh, with uh, Ticketmaster. That, that is quite a range from 20% to as high as 65%. Are you able to, to explain how, how a price could get that, that high? What would attribute then a 65% increase over the advertised price? Yeah, so it's it's hard to to decipher specific assessing mm-hmm. exact price increases resulting from these those additional fees. It's a complex exercise, and really, it's case specific. It's a case specific process, and you're go- going to look at n- a number of variables, such as the actual event, the venue, the date, the type of ticket, how many tickets, etc. So it's hard to decipher the exact amount. But our our evidence and our investigation brought us to those conclusions. Um, but as I said, I think. We've now reached a, an agreement, um, which it reflects the public interest, quite quite frankly, um, and includes, as you said, a four million dollar administrative monetary penalty uh, against Ticketmaster and three and three related companies, and as well as the five hundred thousand dollar cost towards the bureau's investigation. Mm-hmm. I should also say the companies will have to establish a compliance program to ensure that their advertising complies with the law uh, in future, and will implement new procedures to prevent advertising issues in the future. Right. I mean, what does the law say? What is what is Ticketmaster expected to to abide by here? So. 
essentially you have to tell, it's, it really comes down to truth in advertising. Yeah. And it really comes down to telling the consumer up front what the actual cost of a, of a ticket is going to be. And, and uh, to do it at the end of the, of the purchasing process isn't good enough. Um, so it, it really is about uh, ensuring uh, truth in advertising and making sure that consumers have the information they need up front to make informed uh, purchasing decisions. And this, you know, this is important um, because we know that Canadians spend billions of dollars online each year buying tickets to their favorite sporting and entertainment events. And to attract consumers, some companies offer these low prices. However, they sometimes then add these additional um, non-optional mandatory fees uh, later in the purchasing process. And so the real price of the product ends up being much higher. This practice obviously is misleading to consumers uh, because the advertised price was never in fact attainable. And truth in advertising, I believe, and we believe at the Bureau is to everyone's advantage because it ensures that consumers can make informed choices, are not misled, it fosters competition and the growth of the Canadian economy. Yeah. Uh, so the, what becomes of this $4 million then? What is that going to go toward? So the $4 million administrative monetary penalty is pay, paid to the Receiver General of Canada and becomes part of the of the revenues that will be used to uh, benefit Canadians on on a broad range of programs and 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 issues that that address our our you know our society. So it goes into the 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 public funds uh, to benefit Canadian consumers. All right, and so this is a good news day for consumers then. I, I think it really is. And, and the other thing that's really important to, to say here is that in July of 2017, we, the Bureau, issued a warning uh, to the ticket vending industry, sending a very strong signal to uh, the entire digital marketplace, businesses online, including ticket vendors, that they must ensure they do not misrepresent the true, true cost of tickets. And therefore... This uh, agreement really sends a message to anyone, any uh, business in, involved in the ticket vending industry to be on the lookout that, uh, that we will not hesitate to take appropriate action. We're here to level the playing field. So we will continue to examine similar issues in this industry and, uh, and we'll act appropriately. All right. Josephine, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate you giving us an overview of this. My pleasure. Take care. All right. You as well. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Josephine Palumbo, Deputy Commissioner uh, for the Competition Bureau's Deceptive Marketing Practices Directorate. And so this is a pretty significant uh, ruling today. And $4.5 million the Ticketmaster is going to have to cough up here. The statement uh, Ticketmaster released... They point out that last year, Ticketmaster was the first ticket company to voluntarily ensure total prices were displayed up front to Canadian consumers. We look forward to the Competition Bureau and individual provinces ensuring that all other ticket marketplaces in the live event industry meet the same standard. Ticketmaster is committed to leading the industry in consumer safety and transparency and has also adopted best practices to protect Canadian live entertainment consumers that include one. Clearly disclosing if tickets are being sold at the original face value or being resold at prices that may be above or below face value. Two, banning the practice of listing tickets for sale at inflated prices before they are even purchased, a practice known as ticket speculation. Three, clearly identifying if we are the official primary ticket marketplace for an event and if we are not, identifying which marketplace is.
If there's an opportunity to do a review of our policy and see if there's some best practices, uh, but also balancing what's practical given uh, the size of our city and location. Uh, but absolutely, if there's an opportunity to look at our policy and see what some best practices are, we can do that. Okay, so to me, that's the most relevant, outstanding question uh, for the police chief in Lethbridge. That's Chief Rob Davis with the Lethbridge Police Service, talking about the aftermath of this controversy in the ACERT report yesterday, and I guess the controversy that, that ensued from that, regarding uh, a very, uh, what's the, the right word to use here? Unconventional, unpleasant, irresponsible, could come up with all kinds of adjectives but a means of euthanizing a deer. The officer in question, and was captured on video back in January, decided that it would be best to run over an injured deer as a way of euthanizing it. Didn't work on the first attempt. In fact, it clearly caused the animal a great deal of distress, as is painfully apparent from watching the video. So that meant backing up, driving over it again, backing up, driving over it again. Just a, a horrible scene. Acer concluded that charging the officer is not warranted. But Acer did recommend police contact fish and wildlife officials, veterinarians, about best practices for dealing with injured animals. And I hope that's what comes of this. I'm willing to accept then that this officer not going to face charges, even keep his job if the Lethbridge Police Service and other police departments are committed to ensuring that this doesn't happen again. In fact, it is an argument that works in the officer's defense in that he was never instructed otherwise. There was no policy uh, that the Lethbridge Police Service had that he was contradicting. And, And so perhaps then it speaks to some negligence on the police department's part That it's an open question and an officer would think, sure, yeah, I could do this. Because obviously you shouldn't do that. That's that's clearly not uh, an appropriate or responsible way or an ethical way, frankly, to euthanize an injured animal. Uh, So that's about as much as the police chief had to say about that question, which I think is the most relevant. He spoke about just how emotional the case was, defended the officer, uh, said they have no intention of, of opening their own new investigation here. Uh, I can't operate in the emotional realm. I have to deal with the facts, and that's why ACERT came in to investigate it based on the facts and, and again, brought in those outside experts to assist them. But based on the facts, which is the realm I have to operate in, the facts are, are showing that the officer didn't do anything wrong. And in that sense... Uh, he says, look, we need to, to accept these findings. I'm not going to open a second investigation uh, to try and counter what ACERT did. ACERT's an established body. Uh, they're an objective, independent body. They have experts in there. And again, in this case, I am so impressed with ACERT that they brought in the outsiders, outside agencies from Fish and Wildlife and, and the SPCA. It's interesting to hear uh, Police Chief Rob Davis says for him personally, it was frustrating to see this kind of an emotional outcry in a case like this. If the public would unite and unify when we have a murder or a beating that goes unsolved, uh, that would be a, a far step for humanity. Because uh, that was that was one of the, at a personal level, it was very hard that you know, when you see some of the sentences that come out of the judicial system, when you see children being murdered, uh, it gets very little response, but yet this was a worldwide story. Well, it was. And maybe at some level you can see where he has a point, although certainly we do spend a lot of time talking about inappropriate sentences in the judicial system. 
and situations that have caused uh, an intense national outcry. I think recently of the prison transfer to a healing lodge uh, of the woman who was uh, convicted in the murder and rape of Tory Stafford. That caused a huge national outcry. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say that that doesn't happen. And at least you could argue then that those cases you're talking about at least made it to the judicial system. I, I think part of why this resonated with people is that not only did it seem like a police officer abusing his power, acting inappropriately, but that he did so, you know, that, that knowing that people were watching. That he did it in a way where he felt that he was doing the right thing. I think that's why it, it resonated with people. But does the police chief have a point here? Are, are we losing some perspective? Where we're talking about and reacting to a situation where deer died. Albeit in a, a painful way. You might even say a torturous way, but, but died. Died within 15 minutes. And is it disproportionate, given the other things that occur in society that should maybe outrage us more? I mean, he's not totally wrong. And I suspect that that point may resonate with a lot of people. Uh, one more here from uh, Rob Davis says he has to deal with the facts here. And, and just he, he can't, given what his job is, can uh, approach this in an emotional way. People may not uh, like the outcome on the emotional level, but we have to accept the facts that Acer determined. All right, so there's the response today from uh, Lethbridge's police chief, Rob Davis, defending the officer, defending the ACERT investigation, but saying, we'll review our policy. Good, do that. Review your policy. If this doesn't happen again, then we don't have to have this kind of a conversation again. You know, you can argue whether the reaction was disproportionate or whether it was an overreaction. But at the same time, a, a reaction is still logical. It's, it's entirely understandable that people would see that and get upset now where, where should that rank on a scale of one to ten in terms of how upset we are where would that rank on a list of uh, things that have happened in 2019 that we should be upset about i don't know people can disagree on that but to say that well something else bad happened somewhere else therefore we shouldn't react to this at all i, I totally disagree with that Nine seven four eight two five five. Got a text here from Sean. Says Rom, I have to totally disagree. The police chief is conflating two different things. The murder of a young child is not the same as an officer running over a deer. This guy made the wrong decision. He should have called somebody. He should not have thought I'll just run this thing over. Now it's the wrong thing to do. So if we see a situation where a police officer was expected to do the right thing is very clearly doing the wrong thing, I think people are going to react. If a police officer is doing something. That clearly any private citizen would be in a lot of trouble for. And people are going to react. So sure, there are a lot of other things that we can get upset about. The slap on the wrist, the perceived slap on the wrist that some bad guys get. The crimes that, that happen in our communities every day. Yeah, sure, let's, let's get worked up about that too. But it doesn't have to be either or. We, we, can, we can be upset about two things at the same time. We can be upset about a hundred things at the same time. I think we're capable of that. Uh, this is Tina. Tina, go ahead. Hi. Um, Hi so I, I'm going to be honest to start off with, I haven't seen the video of what exactly happened with the deer, but obviously there's a lot to talk about it. And I was just curious if the media ever looked into whether or not the Lethbridge Police Department had a policy on bullets and gunfire and stuff like that. Because my husband's a police officer here in the city of Calgary, and I know when he qualifies, 
if any one bullet does not hit the target, that that's considered a fail because the Calgary Police Service has the belief that any bullet that doesn't hit the target is deemed a possible dead innocent person. So for that, it's a fail. And I'm curious if that was ever looked into by the media. I have no no doubt that ACERT looked into it, but did the media ever consider that? Well, I, I mean, ACERT did point out that there really was no policy dealing with this. Now, my understanding is that, that this is unique, that there have been many other examples in Lethbridge where police officers have used their firearms to euthanize an injured deer. So that, that seems to be the norm for dealing with these kinds of situations. So uh, the fact that this particular officer concluded that that wasn't an option it does seem unusual. Well, and it's certainly I don't think a choice that my husband would make either. I think that he would probably use his firearm to euthanize the animal if necessary. But I was just curious if they had those kind of policies. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair question, uh, Tina. Appreciate the phone call. And I think part of the problem is that there's a real lack of, of a specific policy in Lethbridge. And maybe that's the case elsewhere. So like I said, I mean, hopefully coming out of this, we can say, okay, look, here was a situation where you know, a police officer faced a tough decision, made a bad decision. Maybe there's a need for better policies, better training, better tools at their disposal. And then we don't have to worry about this kind of thing happening again. And we can talk about and get worked up about and upset about these other things that we're supposed to be talking about and getting upset about. Uh, this is Rob. Uh, Rob, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, I'm from Lethbridge here, down where the shooting happened or the runover happened yeah i gotta tell you um i support our police down here a hundred percent they're out there doing the worst job uh nobody else wants to do it he comes upon a deer that was hit by somebody else some coward that ran away and left his injured deer on the road he comes up was there another way to do this i don't know i wasn't there i'm not a backyard quarterback but he can't shoot his gun it, the ricochet, if anyone's ever fired a gun, all these people that are phoning in have probably never fired a gun, don't understand ricochet, don't, don't understand ballistics, and okay, then but, they're going well, well, to judge. Yeah, okay, fair enough, they're going to judge. Officer. He made a choice. You think this, is the, only, you think this is the only time that, that a police officer has been called no, to deal with an injured no, deer? No, it happened in Toronto, and if you read it up, they shot that deer. Yeah, well, we talked about that yesterday. I know, I was listening to you, yeah. and it almost killed somebody. So what so, do other police officers do? Do you think that this is the norm, that police officers run over deer? Do I what? I'm sorry? Do you think this is a normal way of dealing with the situation? Do you think that other officers no. do the same thing? I don't, I don't know what other choice he had. You leave the deer in pain for, for uh, an hour while we wait for maybe the wildlife guy to get there in an hour? There was no vet on call. Why would you have a policy for this? It's such a, an anomaly that the deer actually lives. I live in Lethbridge where there's lots of deer. We see them get hit, oh, monthly. It's horrible. We, I love deer. I think they're cute little animals. But you got to do something. You can't leave an animal in pain. He couldn't jump on it and stab it. I love that guy. He tried something. He thought the vehicle, the weight of the vehicle, would, would crush the deer and put it out of pain immediately. Did he make a mistake? I don't know. I'm not a cop. I wasn't there that night. I didn't make that decision. But we've got to stop running down our, our officers uh, on this Facebook media frenzy that we're on and, and judging them because... We can see 2020 hindsight. It well, never well, they're not above criticism, though. I read the report. I read okay, the complete good. report, and I, I fully support it. I fully support ACER. I fully support our police officers. 
Okay, but the problem is the problem the problem we're left with, and and you seem to be skirting around it, is that if we say that this officer did nothing wrong, then aren't we sending a message that this is an okay way to deal with the situation? I I think it was one option that he took, and I think it was okay because I wasn't there to give him another option. Again, it's it's a common it's a common situation as you've noted. This wasn't a, a rare, unheard of kind of thing that this officer had encountered. That, oh my God, an injured deer. I've never seen anything like this. No, officers encounter this all the time, and they don't do what this guy did. So that's the, that's the problem we're left with. This, this is the problem we're left with here. I know that have put other animals down, and they fired, but not at that location. That's, that's a, well, in fact, I've, I've heard the area. opposite. I've heard the opposite from people in Lethbridge. They've seen officers dispatched deer on that very same road. Yeah, that road goes all the way around half the city. Right. So to say they saw it on... Because Scenic Drive also has a very large area that's a lot of wilderness. So there's a deer hurt there. Go ahead, take a shot. There's nothing around. But where they are, there's lots of apartment buildings. There's lots of residents. It was, it was wrong to assume that he could shoot it. And what we've got right now is we've got all these little snowflakes running around saying, oh, poor deer. Poor deer had to die. Well, the deer was all dying. There's nothing you do with a deer with a back end that's bust like that. It's going to die. So he tried something. It didn't work. We'll know better next time. Like we've got to stop running down. Okay, but if you, if you say if, if he would know better next time, you're conceding the point here that it was the wrong thing to do. No, and not. I think it's unfair no, to not. characterize the critics here as snowflakes. You could turn it around, flip it on this officer that he was so much of a snowflake that he had to hide in his vehicle and try to deal with it this way, as opposed to doing what every single other police officer would do in the situation. And what would have they done in the other, in the situation? What would have the other police officers have done? Not what he that did. That's the point. Oh, oh, not okay, what okay. he so did. What I'm saying is. Instead of just bringing him down, let's find a solution. What did he do that was so wrong? He ran he over the deer. An injured animal. Right. It wasn't just a deer. It was an injured animal. Yes. So that I, so, my point here, Rob, and, and you, you kind of concede it, then you back away. You concede and you back away that he shouldn't have done this. And we should say to other officers, don't do this. This guy did the wrong thing. Fine. He's not going to be charged. Fine. He'll keep his job. But he shouldn't have done that. And future situations should not be dealt with in this way. Can we at least agree on that? I'm not going to agree because future situations could have different different aspects to it. And should you run over a deer with a vehicle? Well, it's illegal. No, it's no. illegal, isn't it? Well, no, it... actually, actually, Rob, what he did is not illegal because he wasn't trying to hunt or hurt the animal. But if and you did that, there. if you read the if you read the fire the, the wildlife act, that's why he wasn't charged because that. No, if I did it, if I see an animal injured, I don't have an I don't have a tactical knife. I don't have a firearm on me because I live in Canada. So what do I have to do? I have to try and help the animal and try and put it out of pain. I may decide to run over its head with my vehicle. Well, I hope you don't. I think that's a great idea. And you might but, find yourself but, in a lot of trouble for doing that. Well, well, wait a minute now. Why? Because I'm trying to help it. I'm well, not, that, I'm that's, not that's what you're claiming. It, and there's a difference. You see, Rob, there's this little thing in Canadian law called um, uh, uh, yeah, 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 where you want to do it, right? Where, I'm, where, where I'm you want to do it. Where I'm intentionally doing harm or wrong. No, right? but, but my point here is. If I'm doing harm or wrong, that's different than trying to help. Right. But it's after the fact. If, if the, the, the Fish and Wildlife show up and there's a, a dead deer that died as and a result of you running fault. over it, you can try to claim that you were trying to help it. Okay. And then I've got to prove that I was trying to help. Yeah, right? Because or otherwise, the presumption is going to be that you broke the law. Well, well, which law have I broken? 
See, they got to prove it. We're still li- we still live in Canada, <laughs> don't we? They still have to prove that I was trying to do it. They can charge me, but I can go to court and prove that I wasn't. Yeah. Okay. The fact Good of the matter is, that. the officer didn't have a lot of choices. He could yes, have he tried did. to stab it, which means getting in close and maybe getting kicked with a with a razor sharp hoof. He could have fired his gun, maybe have a ricochet go and shoot someone. Okay, maybe maybe just scare someone. Whatever. He would have been in worse trouble for that. He put the deer's head up on a curb and tried to crush it, which that's is not gross. what he did. It's gro- he did. He pulled it onto the curb. I've seen the video. He didn't try to run over well, the head. What did he try and run over? The consoles? Of course he was trying to to run over the head. He tried to crush the skull. He was trying to crush its internal organ. No, no. He ran over the the head of the deer. From what I saw in the video, he's running over the head of the deer. Maybe I'm wrong. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going back is, to the Acer report. The point is here, Rob. Okay. You, you, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. You, you're willing to defend this officer. I, I get that. You're not Absolutely. alone. You're not alone. I, I think it's a horrible way to deal with this situation. I hope no officer does this in the future. And I hope what comes out of this is policies that say this is not the way to euthanize uh, an animal. So, Well, let's, let's do it this way, Rob. Let me, let me put this out to you then. Let's not defend the officer. Let's charge him and have him quit the force. Then let's do it to the next one and the next one. And then the next time you need a cop and you phone and they're all way too busy because no one's, they're scared to do the job because of social media coming after them in such, such uh, basic ways they can't do the job. Now what do we do? We have to start defending our police officers even when they make a mistake. No, well, That's no, that, I'm okay. Well, I, I'll, I'm willing to defend the ones who don't make mistakes. I'm willing to defend the ones who do their job the right way. And, Acer, and those who make mistakes. Acer said he didn't make a mistake. Well, they the said he's not. He well, make a mistake. So now you're not defending him, though, because you no, think I, it's still a mistake. Wrong. Yeah, I do. I do. So your opinion is more important than, and the opinion of a lot of the callers today are that the officer made a mistake, even though Acer said he didn't, and Acer defended. No, well, hang on, but Acer didn't say he acted properly. Acer said he's he's not going to be charged and shouldn't be he charged. He didn't but do anything criminal. Right, so that's a different kind of threshold, I would argue. Rob, I, I, look, I got to take a break. I appreciate the back and forth here. Strong opinions on both sides of this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.